one of the worst things about watching this movie for me is realizing how much I talk normal. Like, my normal talking is crazy Jack Torrance. Hi, my name's Rachel Weinberg. And I'm Diego Medina. And this is Deja Vu, the show where we watch new releases and compare them to the classic movies that influence them. This week we watched It Chapter 2, and we also watched The Shining, two pivotal books from Stephen King, but are vastly different from one another. So Diego, what did you think about It Chapter 2? I thought it was good. It wasn't as good as the first one. Um, It felt really long, though, and that is something I really can't get over, especially for the, like comparative lack of clown i feel i mean the thing that's interesting about it is that it was directed once again by andy muschetti who directed it chapter one and it was also written by gary dauberman who also wrote it chapter one um he also wrote films in the conjuring universe which is also kind of fun and the novel it is like 2,000 pages of Stephen King's coke-filled nightmare, so I understand the 169-minute runtime, but at the same time, it was super, super, super long, and there were multiple times where, like, I would look over at you, and I'm like, how much time is left? And you're like, it's only 12.30, and there was still another hour left, but yeah, I mean, it was budgeted for $60 million, and on opening weekend, it made one hundred ninety. million dollars which is the second biggest horror movie opening of all time first was it chapter one um but overall i liked the movie i thought the casting was really really great um especially bill Hader, who played richie i think that that should have been a secondary character but it ended up becoming a primary character and it was so well acted that i was fine with it i feel like at the same time though the movie had like It was unfocused in, like, who it wanted to be the main character, I feel, because, like, you have a pretty, like, star-studded cast, and they're all, like, basically competing for the runtime, and I think that's why the movie ends up being, like, the way it is structurally, just because this movie, especially its second act, is the same scene on repeat with different actors, and it gets pretty old after like the third time i think yeah i agree i mean it was that let's get our little thingamajigger let's go to a place where we would get it let's have a flashback to when we were young that was supposed to be around the same time but also doesn't make much sense in regard to the first movie let's have pennywise come back in a different form and scare me let's move on to the next person um and as much as I felt like a couple of those scares were earned, specifically, like, we're getting into spoilers, um, the one of the little girl under the bleachers, I thought that was kind of scary, and Beverly, whenever the old lady is behind the walls, not when she turns into the giant, like, monster. Yeah. There were a lot of scary moments that were also just, like, funny. Like, whenever Richie, played by Bill Hader, is... Well, yeah, Richie, played by Bill Hader, we know. <laughs> yeah, I love Bill Hader. Um, whenever Richie is being chased by Paul Bunyan, like, oh, yeah. what the hell was that? That was actually, like, scary. Oh, really? I thought that was funny. Like, when it happened, it scared me. Not, like, in a disturbing way, but just, like, in a shock way. I was like, what's happening? Yeah, no, I, I started laughing. I thought it was 
thought it was really stupid. I Something I thought that was, like, funny and scary at the same time, and it's kind of, like, messed up to say, but, like, that scene um, in, like, the mirror maze when the kid's, like, in between... Uh, What's Bill McAvoy's name? Uh, James McAvoy. His name is Bill. Bill James McAvoy <laughs> as Bill. Um, he's between Bill and Pennywise. Mm-hmm. And, like, I just really liked that scene a lot. I thought it was well done. And, like, you know, this... this uh, He was trying to have his moment, trying to save the little brother that he couldn't, and he failed. And it's just really good to see Pennywise taunt him because I think... Bill Skarsgård did a great job in that scene. I agree. I think Bill Skarsgård was definitely underused in this, which made sense because before we did this podcast, I rewatched the It miniseries as well as I rewatched Chapter One, and I've seen way too many clowns. Um, but in the end, and also in the book, like Pennywise takes on the form of a spider. So I in which they kind of did in this movie, but in the miniseries, everyone hated the spiders. So they were like, let's make a spider with a clown's head. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I feel like they wanted to like try and strike a balance between like staying true to the book and like also including Pennywise in the final like confrontation. Because that's what we're here to see. We're here to see it's a clown movie. For like, sure. It's a demon alien monster thing, but like, no, it's it's a clown. For sure. The thing about that scene that you were just talking about, though, is the movie, especially the first one, is filled with such good gore and such good practical effects, one of which I'll get into a little later in the podcast. But I was hoping for, like, more of a kid's body instead of just a splurt of blood on the glass and then James McAvoy's face, like, oh. I don't know. Do you see all those teeth? I don't think that's going to leave much left. Yeah, I guess, but... Pennywise was like in the first It Chapter One, he had those same teeth and ripped off Georgie's arm. Yeah, because he couldn't, you can't wrap your mouth through the like open slot of a sewer. Yes, that's true. Um, I thought the best thing about the movie, though, honestly, was the casting for so many points of the film. I thought that Jessica Chastain looked just like the young Beverly and um bill Hader did a really great job as richie i was actually reading that finn wolfhart was the one who said i want bill Hader to play me in the movie and that's how bill Hader got the job um but i also thought that james renzone was amazing as eddie and i think that those two were the two that were the most closely like physically related mm-hmm. and we could see that in that match cut from whenever young old Eddie is in the pharmacy and it does that dissolve to young Eddie in the same pharmacy with the same old pharmacist yeah, the same little girl just like him it was crazy um there were it was such great casting even for Stan who was only in it in a little bit um so there was definitely a lot of love and care in that but the thing that was so distracting throughout the whole movie for me was the fact that they de-aged these little kids Finn Wolfhart looks they like did? yeah oh my god how didn't you notice I don't know like I wasn't really sure how to gauge what they looked like because I haven't seen it chapter one since like I saw it last which mm-hmm. was a while ago and like I saw him in Stranger Things 3 but like he looks old now and he's older in the show and they always seemed like more mature in it chapter one because you know he was swearing up a storm in the first movie so I did just, just didn't occur to me that they de-aged the kids. 
I mean, it makes sense. It's been a while. Two years. Two years since the movie came out. Yeah, I thought it was super noticeable, um, mainly with Finn Wolfhard, who played Rishi, because you could even see the way his cheeks were just, like, bigger. I, I don't know. Whenever he had the glasses on, it didn't look like him, especially he looks older now. And then Jack Dylan Grazer, who played Eddie, he also was severely de-aged for what I could see. And their voices also sounded super weird. And yeah. maybe that was because I had just watched chapter one, but it was distracting. I did notice they had done something to the voices. Um, it didn't really bother me a ton, though. I don't know. That de-aging technology, it seems like something that has mostly been like developed for adults and older actors. I don't know. I don't, I've never heard of like de-aging happening to young people until now. I mean, it makes sense because they are trying to play this office the whole summer. Um, this all is in one summer and then a little bit after the whole sore incident. But it, I don't think we're at a place with de-aging technology right now where we can do it with such young kids. Hmm. Um, and also, it's a universal movie. It's not like we have the Disney de-aging budget. You know what I mean? I mean, young Jeff Bridges <laughs> he doesn't look that great now. He looks a little rubbery. That's true. Still great movie. I also, when I was re-watching this, I was thinking a lot about Tim Curry, Pennywise, in the 1990 miniseries. And after going through that, which was super long, and just the movies are such leaps and bounds better, um, I think the thing that really stays the same and what keeps the magic of both of those different iterations of the film alive is the portrayal of Pennywise and I think that in most of these Stephen King adaptations which we'll get into a little more deeper in the show um, the use of acting no matter who the director is no matter how focused you are in it because Stephen King's characters are so rich they have to be properly done and this actually was a little more focused on the miniseries than the first book, than the first chapter, because it does a lot of more pushing from young to old, young to old. And that's kind of the whole major thing of the miniseries. But I'm glad that Mike got a lot more time in this movie. I felt like he is the narrator of the book and I felt like he was kind of cast aside in the first chapter. So for him to get a little more leg room is a lot nicer as well. Um, and also like I love gore. I love horror movies and I thought that there was so much gore in this one. And one of my favorite moments in the movie and one of my favorite homages in the movie is Stan's head because it is a total frame for frame recreation of the thing. Um, whenever the legs sprout out and he starts running around and I thought that was a really great nod but there was some CGI in there that was super distracting especially at the Chinese restaurant scene where they start opening up the um the fortune cookies the fortune cookies yeah the the CGI on the heads looked pretty bad weren't the fortune cookie CGI too yeah they were yeah, it was pretty noticeable. It looked like a PS2 game, but I thought the effects were pretty good pretty much everywhere else. Like, anytime Pennywise's face is, like, misshaping or, like, warping, it's really cool. I mean, I think, like, Bill Skarsgård being able to actually move his eyes adds a lot. 
I think, though, that the ending wasn't as climactic as I was hoping for. It felt very similar to the first part, only they ripped out its heart. Yeah, like, the the way they beat him isn't very, like... It's, like, it isn't heroic, per se, but it's, like... It kind of just feels, like, dirty. It doesn't feel... Like, I guess it's earned, but it, like, doesn't feel like they won. It just kind of feels like they did what they had to do. They bullied the alien, and now they get to go home with one less friend. I was just about to say that. I was like, is It Chapter 2 just a PSA for bullying? Um, No, but I totally agree. I felt like the weird morphing of the clown to be a little baby clown, and then them just, like ripping out its heart wow super cool i love a good heart chest rip out um wasn't it for me but what did you think about the um the arc between eddie and richie it was unexpected i didn't dislike it i didn't ex like i didn't expect the like a richie to be gay it didn't really seem like did that feel set up at all to you in the first movie um, it wasn't that it felt set up to me in the first movie, but in the cold open, which has like extreme homophobia, it is kind of foreshadowed because the main char- the guy whose boyfriend was being beaten up and killed ended up needing the inhaler to breathe mm-hmm. similar to Eddie and then gets eaten by Pennywise similar to Eddie. So I think that they tried to make that full circle and that cold open actually is in the book. Um, but in the miniseries, whenever I was watching it again, Eddie was the one who I thought was a coded character, not Richie, because he ends up saying that he has never lost his virginity because the only people he ever loved were in that group. So I always thought that was coding. Hmm. But I don't know. I thought that they handled it. It wasn't as blatant as it sh- as it could have been. I liked that twist. I liked the idea of like, the reason why he hides behind his humor so deeply is because he's so genuinely insecure with his sexuality. Mm-hmm. I yeah, that it's a good like, it's a good arc within the context of it chapter two, but having the book as a companion piece as well as having the first movie, which like, is essentially required viewing for this. Um, I would almost wish they would have done more to, like, kind of establish that in advance in the first movie. I think it would have just, it would have, um, it could have saved a lot of time, I think, in the second movie, as well as kind of just strengthen the bond between the two of them, because I think what really ties the two movies together is all the flashbacks to the first movie. Mm -hmm. Other than that, it feels like, almost its own thing don't you think that's kind of lazy though that like the only like the best parts of the movie for me were the tiny little flashbacks whenever i was seeing them as kids yeah no it definitely is lazy that's why i'm like kind of disappointed about it but i thought that that bond between the two of them was set up pretty well i know that whenever we were when we were in the theater i think the moments that we laughed the most were whenever richie and eddie were like playing off of one another and again that says so much to the um chemistry between bill Hader and james ransone i think they both were two of the strongest players in the film um but the 
like the other coupling in the movie and i think the most central coupling of the movie which is beverly and ben played by jessica chastain and jay ryan i thought that was super disjunctive and did not make as much sense and at the end whenever he's in the clubhouse and she's in the bathroom was just super forced like i was not feeling that one I think that has to do a lot in part with the fact that they have this constant will they, won't they for the first half with not just her and Ben, but also with her and Bill. And I feel like they should have just had her know what she was like on from the start. I feel like her having to kind of figure out that he's the one that wrote the poem or like that she was immediately like turned on to the new hot Ben. I don't need that whole, you know, love triangle situation because we know what's gonna happen anyway more or less bill he's too worried about killing the it he doesn't have time for women in his life bill also has a wife oh right i forgot about that that's another thing is that the wife and bill's wife and beverly's husband were were much larger players in the book towards the second half and even in the miniseries um bill's wife who is also an actress comes in and um ends up getting seen by the lights of pennywise and becomes catatonic and at the end of the miniseries she's on bill's handlebars on his bike and then the child and her reignites and they fall in love again it was so campy and so stupid so i was kind of glad that they didn't show that but at the same time why are we going to have these introductory like scenes with bill's wife if it doesn't really have anything to do with the rest of the film i could see it more with beverly's husband because it shows that she's been in a cycle of abuse over and over and over again but i just kind of thought that one was unfulfilling I think my favorite, the most excited I was in the whole movie was in that scene when I saw Peter Bogdanovich, of all people, come down the directing chair in the Warner Brothers lot. And I was just like, what? Because Peter Bogdanovich was like, he did the last picture show and he and Orson Welles are like best friends, were like best friends. So seeing Peter Bogdanovich, who was in his like easily early 80s, in this movie of all movies was so strange to me and i was actually reading up on it because i i turned to you i knew you did not know who i was talking about i knew you did not care and i'm like oh my god there's peter bogdanovich in this movie like what what and you were like uh-huh yeah yeah okay rach yeah whatever um but i guess the thing is is that bogdanovich is friends with muschetti who directed the movie and he was like come on my set and be in it and peter bogdanovich who is just a like loves being in the limelight which even though he it's kind of he's so weird he's such a character i'd love to just talk to him for an hour was like yeah sure let's do it i thought the cameos were really good and it reminded me of the old stephen king movies from like the 80s and like the early 90s when in all of his adaptations, Stephen King would like come in and just play a small part and it would just be like, oh, there's Stephen King, like in Creepshow, which he was so terrible in. He was doing Stanley cameos before Stanley was Stanley. Honestly, yeah. I have a question for you. I have an answer for you. Do you feel like Pennywise was more of a character in the first movie? Absolutely. I feel like in this movie, he was more of like... A prop. In the, yeah, like a narrative device, like in, just an entity. Mm-hmm. I, f- I really wish they would have dived more into, like, what it is and, like, how it works and what makes it think 
instead of just seeing him eat kids. I think, though, see, the book, It, is over a thousand pages of a Stephen King cocaine-filled nightmare. Like, it makes no sense whatsoever. And there are a little bit of Easter eggs, like whenever Ben is in the projection room and Pennywise is playing Bev and they kiss and you see the the turtle because in the book, like, the universe is on a tortoise's shell. Well, that's like all the Stephen King books are part of that universe. (laughs) It's like very well connected. Like the Dark Tower, that series connects like all the books somehow. Well, that is like, again, just cocaine. Um, But I feel like if they went into what it was and went past Pennywise, it would get too science fiction-y and too people would lose interest. I think the reason that like people went to see it was because it was a scary clown movie. Um, and for me, disheveled Bill Hader. I thought they did a really great job with casting. I, I liked the movie. I didn't love the movie. I was hoping to like it a lot more than I did. Yeah. But I enjoyed it. I mean, I, ha- I didn't leave feeling sad. Yeah. I, I, I left disappointed, not because I was disappointed, but because I wasn't blown away. Mm-hmm. Like I was with the first movie. Yeah. I was like, yeah, this is, it's what I paid for. But like the first movie, you got so much more. I agree. Um, do you have any other thoughts about it? Chapter two long? Please let me have my jokes. <laughs> I'm a funny girl. It's long. It's good. It's not great. Now let's move on to The Shining. It was as though I'd been here before. I mean, we all have moments of deja vu, but this was ridiculous. The Shining came out in 1980, directed by Stanley Kubrick and written by Stanley Kubrick and Diane Johnson. Um, And it stars Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance. It stars Shelley Duvall as Wendy Torrance, Danny Lloyd as Danny Torrance, Scatman Crothers as Mr. Halloran. So, what did you think about The Shining? I liked it. I you liked it. You didn't love it. it. I I don't really love horror movies, but I liked it. I mean, I I I love this movie. Um, What a surprise! But it's a little shorter than It Chapter Two at thankfully one forty four at one hundred forty four minutes. And similar to It Chapter 2, it made a lot of money. It had a budget of $19 million and made $44 million. I love this movie. And the reason that I think this movie works so much better than It, well, I mean, there are a couple reasons, but it's the use of placement. So whenever we're thinking of It Chapter 2, Derry Maine is supposed to be a character in it, right? Mm -hmm. Similar to how the Overlook Hotel is a character in it. It was much more of a character in It Chapter 1. I... Yeah, I would agree. I feel like it's kind of hard to not have those two be reviewed together in tandem. But the thing about the Overlook, and even at the beginning, Kubrick immediately opens up with these like beautiful surrealist shots while they're traveling. And like these shots are just overhead. And it's kind of reminding me of Midsommar that came out this um, summer as well. But while you are in the closing section of the film, which is like, Actually, when you understand what The Shining is 32 minutes in, um, you are consistently moving. The camera is on a Steadicam, which was relatively new for 1980. Steadicams actually really started with 1979's Halloween. 
78's Halloween, excuse me. And in The Shining, Kubrick like went so far over budget because he was consistently using Steadicam. And you are on that tour of the Overlook Hotel. You are knowing where every single room is. It's taking you along. And I think that's something really smart whenever you're a screenwriter, that you're able to go back to every single setting before and then make those make more sense. While in It Chapter 2, I felt like everyone came back to Derry, but all I remember is the weird treehouse that we went to once and then Ben had his strange dream in in the carnival. There wasn't that amazing mapping that Kubrick is so seamlessly able to do. Yeah, I feel like a lot of It Chapter 2's problems stem from the like strange like plot choice to have them all suffer amnesia about like dairy as like a place because it seems like they imply that they forgot where like they came from or something and when they saw they were getting a phone call from dairy maine they're like wow dairy maine forgot that was a thing that existed <laughs> forgot i lived there and fought a clown and almost died there honestly but i think that's just one of the most like genius parts of this film and it also the film sets you up with understanding that this is more of a family drama turned into a paranormal drama and I really start to feel that 17 minutes into the film and it's whenever Shelley Duvall's character Wendy is talking to the doctor about Danny's arm so like let's listen to that clip no <laughs> he didn't like it too much at first and then he had an injury, so we kept him out for a while. And yeah, I, I guess that's about the time when I first noticed that he was talking to Tony. What sort of injury did he have? Uh, he dislocated his shoulder. How did he manage to do that? Well, it was just one of those things, you know, purely an accident. Uh, my husband had... Uh, been drinking and he came home about three hours late so he wasn't exactly in the greatest mood that night and well Danny had scattered some of his school papers all over the room and my husband grabbed his arm you know to pull him away from him it's, it's just the sort of thing you do a hundred times with a child you know in the park or in the streets but on this particular occasion my husband just used too much strength and he injured Danny's arm. And that definitely does come back a little more into the movie whenever Danny has the um the issue with his neck, but it's showing right away that this is an imbalance of power in this relationship. And Shelley Duvall, who I think has it's one of the greatest performances I've ever seen in a film is Shelley Duvall's and it's a shame that what it took for her to get that because it's so well known that Kubrick was terrible towards her. He worked her to the bone. He was so mean and like really just like screwed with her so often that she was having sincere panic attacks while she was shooting. Um, and they said that like Shelley Duvall had a lot of resentment towards the success of the film because everyone pushed that on to Kubrick rather than pushing that on to Shelley Duvall and I think that scene is so interesting because it's going through the 
lack of power that Wendy has within the film, similar to the lack of power that Shelley Duvall has within the filming of the process. And if you like want to hear it from one of the greats of the greats of the greats, Jack Nicholson says that that is the best performance of a woman he's ever seen in film, is Shelley Duvall in The Shining. And I think that the choices that she makes whenever she is speaking with her pauses in her, in her southern draw and the way that she holds her cigarette in her hand and just let it, lets it continue to burn. Only after that, takes it out and you have so much like soot beginning to fall off, similar to the amount of like soot that her relationship is growing with, is just an amazing like point in the film and is so powerful so soon. In that movie, she looks like right from the, from the get, looks like she had been through the dryer for like way too many cycles and the heat just wasn't working and she's still wet. And so she looks like she has just not had a bad time or not had a good time since like, you know, her birth. And you really feel that in just every movement and every word, just like you can see it in her eyes, especially like when she's like backing away from him when she's got the baseball bat, like, that scene so much it's 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 so real it doesn't feel like contrived or acted in any way like it just feels like it's happening and that scene right there is the first pov scene we see in the whole movie every time every other time without the film we are staring at these characters and maybe we could say the shining is a pov but at the same time that's not in danny's consciousness but whenever Shelley Duvall is walking up those stairs and she's swinging the bat at Jack Nicholson, that's the first real over-the-shoulder shot that we're seeing. And for the woman who in this movie is completely like deranged because the men around her are acting so crazy, we're getting to see that with her eyes. And I think that's, again, one of the best shots in the whole movie. I hadn't seen this movie in a while, um, in a really long time. It scared me really badly when I was a little kid, and I rewatched it again a couple years ago and I liked it and I was not looking forward to seeing it again because I knew how long it was and I knew like the story of Shelley Duvall and it brings up a lot of ethical questions for me like should we allow directors to treat actors like this in order to get a performance but then I was watching it last night and I was like oh my god like this is so good oh I'm such a terrible person for loving it as much as I do but it's really it's her performance for me that sells the whole movie and I know everyone talks about Jack Nicholson Jack Nicholson Jack Nicholson and he's great too but Shelley Duvall is just a powerhouse throughout the whole film but yeah, it's such a strong performance fi film by a director that is so often known for not caring about performances. I mean, Kubrick is known for his um, very meticulous nature, making Tom Cruise walk through a doorway 92 times, having the pieces of the puzzle in place, and then having your actors in second. And I think maybe that's why this is such an important Kubrick film for me in such a successful adaptation of a Stephen King film is because, as I said previously, the actors and these characters in a King movie is what needs to shine. Yeah, I feel like both of these movies have that in spades. I think like where their biggest differences lie is in their pacing and how they tell their story. Because I think The Shining is very straightforward in the way it tells its story but it doesn't just go in one way necessarily. Like the way I think of it is like the story of The Shining is kind of like a tree growing upwards. 
and you know from the roots to the top is the beginning to the end but it also branches out in so many ways that you don't necessarily need to explore in the con like within the confines of the movie itself but it leaves a lot for you to speculate on later yeah i would totally agree i think the ending of the shining is so controversial and then also that questioning of what the shining is i mean i still don't see how it's genetic but we can listen to um mr holleran and danny talk about it and maybe see something from there you know some places are like people some shine and some don't i guess you could say the overlook hotel here has something about it that's like shining Is there something bad here? Well, you know, Doc, when something happens, it can leave a trace of itself behind. Say, like, if someone burns toast. Well, maybe things that happen leave other kind of traces behind. Not things that anyone can notice but things that people who shine can see well it's not necessarily related to the genetic question more or less an explanation of how the shining works but i don't know i don't know if the shining is all that effective because you know danny reaches out to him through the shining or whatever once things start to go sideways but then homie walks right in through the front door and starts hollering. Guess that's why it's his last name. <laughs> and that's why he takes an axe to the chest and couldn't have uh, seen that one coming. Just getting back to what I was saying a little bit about the fear factor in this movie that I don't think is as properly used in It Chapter 2 is sound design. Um, in It Chapter 2, the sound design is much more based in jump scares rather than in The Shining when we get scenes like this with Danny on his tricycle. There's just something so unnerving about that. Yeah, I agree. I think, like, The Shining spends a lot of time building up that sense of dread, while It Chapter 2 kind of has, like, that violin note of, of increasing pitch as the jump scare draws ever closer that we're so, like, well-adjusted to at this point that you're basically only cringing in your seat because you know it's coming. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's... Again, I I refer to The Shining as more of a Kubrick movie than a horror movie. Mm -hmm. um, I would refer to It Chapter 2 as more of a horror movie than a Stephen King movie. Um, and notoriously, Stephen King hated The Shining. He said that it wasn't a good adaptation. Um, Kubrick was actually looking for people like De Niro and Robin Williams to play the role of Jack Torrance. And it obviously ended up going to Jack Nicholson. About 46 minutes in, when you're talking about, which is in the beginning of the Thursday section, um, 
I see a bit of Pennywise in Jack Torrance. And it's that part whenever um, Shelley Duvall and Danny, so Wendy and Danny are running through the snow and you see him just looking out the window. And there's that, um, and he has that facial expression that just looks so dead inside. His eyes are just hanging open, leering, like almost salivating at what he'll be doing to his wife and son, similar to Pennywise. And I wonder if Alex Muschietti and Bill Skarsgård added a little bit of that to the character. Yeah, I feel like definitely in those moments where Pennywise was like, I missed you, I craved you, like that's definitely, I feel like is derivative of that like kind of classic Stanley Kubrick moment of insanity. And I think also the thing I weirdly love about The Shining is how non-gory it is. I mean, yeah, we have these huge scenes where there is gallons upon gallons of blood going into hallways. Um, But it's pretty rare for you to actually see like realistic gore in that sense. Mm -hmm. And the only times you really do are when the two little girls um, are being like, are laying out dead whatever Danny is looking at them and it's that cut between like that use of disjunctive editing which Kubrick is so amazing with as well as the part when um Mr. Holloway gets axed in the chest but even then it, it's it's not too overpowering you could tell that wasn't what Kubrick was looking for he was looking for that very very intense psychological scare yeah and like even at the part when um she slices his hand with the knife it's like that cut almost feels like getting cut with a knife like it's slight and they're like it's used so sparingly like almost like split second frames where you get to see like that type of blood and violence and that goes back to that use of manipulation and it's not only manipulation of the hotel but manipulation of jack's character towards wendy when he is in that freezer and he's like oh i'm I'm in pain i gotta go see the doctor it so much reminded me of when Beverly's dad was talking to her and it, um, and seeing how King repeatedly is writing these very, very toxic relationships from, like, men to women. I mean, Jack definitely does show a sense of fragile masculinity, and he shows that whenever he is at his, when he's working and when he's writing. And I think we can see that dominance once again right here. Let's listen to it. It's so fucking typical of you to create a problem like this when I finally have a chance to accomplish something. When I'm really into my work. I could really write my own ticket if I went back to Boulder now, couldn't I? Shoveling out driveways, working a car wash. Get that appeal to you. Jack. Wendy, I have let you fuck up my life so far, but I am not going to let you fuck this up. So we can see that dominating presence over there, similar to the way in It Chapter 2 when he puts the perfume on Beverly and he says, you're always going to be my little girl and kind of holds on to her. Um, I, I have to bring up the, the lady in the bathtub because that honestly is like, again, I saw this movie when I was way too young. I watched it with my dad and that was the scariest thing in the world to me. I, I still, whenever I was watching it, 
as a 20 year old like horror movie lover had my eyes like almost closed not ready to see the leprosy or whatever is wrong with her she's just like decaying yeah and it's supposed to be grady's wife i'd assume but there's just something so terrifying about it because it's he and her are making out doing what jack nicholson would be doing and he looks into the mirror and mirrors in this movie have so much like i think the mirror in this movie is not only what we are seeing a mirrored image but also the reality of the movie is through the mirrors we could see that whenever jack torrance is looking at himself in the mirror and seeing his decaying mind we can look at it whenever he's seeing the decaying woman whenever wendy is finally able to realize what's happening it's once tony writes red rum on the door and in the mirror she sees murder so it's really introspective and i think that's another reason why that aspect is so scary mm. but yeah the the lady in the bathtub just like Mm-mm. Yeah, scared me. It it didn't really like affect me that that horribly. I'm afraid I don't have the trauma filled backstory to <laughs> supplement my watching of this movie. Both of them are playing with period. Um, it chapter two is playing with that '80s aesthetic, and it, in some spots, I mean, in, at this point, most of it's in the present. And similarly, they are looking at the 1920s in the Overlook Hotel specifically 1921, which we can see by the end of the film. And the use of production design is just so perfectly played within this film. Everything is so meticulous that most of the time I was watching it and I was just thinking like, oh my God, could you imagine being a fly on the wall on that set and having to have the rugs be in that perfect of a stance, looking down at the model of the gardens which the gardens were actually all that snow was nine tons of styrofoam oh wow That's yeah wasteful wasteful so wasteful um but those shots are just so beautiful to me even though it's probably one of the reasons why the planet is dying i think shelly duvall says it in the movies like this hotel is gorgeous and it really is but at the same time it's gorgeous in the way that it's so hypnotizing and like a lot of there's, like, such use of, like, patterns, especially in its, like, carpets and, like, the intricate Native American uh, designs all over the, um, all over the hotel. And I think that's another, like, more downplayed but interesting connection that both of these movies share. And both movies, like, really don't really do anything with either of these like native american connections that they bring up this is a stephen king trope he's very much into native american burial grounds um it's the same with pet cemetery like the cemetery was a native american burial ground i noticed that too a lot in this watch they were like yeah it was where the native americans were and i was like okay like just stephen king must really 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 love the idea of like um pillaging and like taking what's not ours and we can see that both with like the alien inhabitant in it chapter two as well as what the torrances are doing with the overlook like watching over something that's not theirs what do you think the native american means of stopping pennywise failing have to say it's the i mean do you think it's like a colonial question i don't know because like they had this whole plan that involved like the jar or whatever but the way they really beat him is by, you know, bullying, schoolyard insults. <laughs> so, 
like I think what does that question say both like about the sort of white superstition about like Native American culture as well as it just not working and like to build to hype it up only for it to fail in the end yeah I think that that's like a really interesting question and an interesting point and something that Stephen King must really think about often because again he's very very into Native American burial grounds like in so many of his movies it's really weird honestly in that like that frame right there of like Jack Torrance just staring it reminds me of the scene in it too when Pennywise is like counting down in front of the little girl and he just stops and like and she's like you're supposed to say three two one yeah <laughs> like where but that like pause that is ex- it it almost looks like a shot for shot like like recreation of that look yeah this except uh, Jack Nicholson can't make his eye wander <laughs> and I think just something funny that whenever I was watching it about here just reminded me so deeply of you and me mm. and I, I just wanted to play it for you do you think maybe he should be taken to a doctor as soon as possible as soon as possible that's me. it that is you <laughs> that is you going as soon as possible yeah the one of the worst things for the about watching this movie for me is realizing how much I talk normal like my normal talking is crazy Jack Torrance yeah whenever he did as I was like man that's Diego making fun of literally everything I say oh yeah yeah as soon as I saw that I was like oh I do that <laughs> yeah you do <laughs> I can't wait for you to ax me up into little pieces um but yeah let's let's go back to the end now what were, what were your thoughts on the end because this is the first time you've ever seen this movie so i've seen this movie a couple times you haven't seen it before what were you thinking towards the end well it's crazy it's off the wall it um it's really that, that maze at the end when he's like chasing him honestly that was probably pretty like one of the scariest points in the movie for me i'm not really sure why though and just like see him frozen out there i don't know why but he looks really funny when he's frozen in the ice the thing that really has been sticking out to me more about the ending is that you know the shot of the picture yeah and the way that that really comes up and i think that that's why kubrick once again uses the cutting in on that picture over and over and over again and just how seamlessly Torrance was able to slip through time is very unnerving did we discuss the like what we thought the ending meant on recording I don't remember I don't think we did I think that he's recarded into the hotel and I think the hotel is its own like being its own burial ground and that you're kind of like morphed into it and become autonomous with the hotel but I don't know, you kind of said something a little differently. I don't know. I feel like it kind of fits along those lines. I feel like Jack is just, like, he's become a part of the, like, the cast of terrible people that have come to permanently inhabit the hotel, at least spiritually, because you see him in the picture. Assumedly, Grady is another one of those people, and... Like, 
who's to say that people don't keep going back to the Overlook now and in the Shining universe and keep having these terrible experiences and these are just more reincarnations of the people we see in this final photo. I think that's a really good point. I think, too, you know, Kubrick, when he was making this movie, was very, very focused on the idea of spirituality and religion. And it was, it's was it been told that he would call Stephen King at, like, 3 o'clock in the morning and be like, do you believe in God? Tell me <laughs> if you believe in God. And Stephen King would be like, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Please shut up. And Kubrick would deny it later, but Stephen King has confirmed that would happen. So that idea of spirituality and, like, what constitutes as a soul within a place and whether a place can like capture those souls is definitely something that Kubrick was thinking about. Just imagine getting a call from Stanley Kubrick at three in the morning. He's definitely high. <laughs> Do you believe in God? Honestly, that Tell would... me right now. That's kind of my whole, um, it's kind of my whole dream. Now that we have the ending out of the way, let's get to the, t the thing that ties these two films together. And that's the man, the myth, the legend, Stephen King. The cocaine-filled writer who's up till 3 o'clock in the morning answering Stanley Kubrick's phone calls. So Stephen King, born in Maine, Derry, Maine, we can see all that, is this crazy writer dude who is still pumping out novels, even though most of them are kind of crazy. And... I really think, though, that Stephen King's adaptations began in 1979 with Brian De Palma's Carrie. And obviously, Carrie became a cult classic, but it wasn't the cult classic. It was a cult classic, but it wasn't a critical classic. And the real legitimacy of Stephen King's work adaptation-wise was The Shining. And that's because you got a name like Kubrick on there. So it's interesting to me, and what I've been trying to find out is if Stephen King is the most well-adapted author in cinema history. And while I don't know if that's true, um, it seems like there have been so many. I mean, he's written approximately 200 short stories and s multiple, multiple, multiple movies that are just so much in our zeitgeist come from Stephen King, whether that is a Carrie or a Shining. Now we have It, Shawshank, Stand By Me. Oh, gosh even the dark tower which came out last year which was complete crap like stephen king has had such an intense connection to cinema that i think it's hard not to think of him as a cinematic auteur responding directly to stephen king hating the shining movie i feel like given how different the book and the movie are i don't know if it's necessarily a successful adaptation and I feel like there's a larger discussion that needs to be had about like what adaptation versus um, reinterpretation is. And I feel like this movie is much more of a reinterpretation of King's story. Like the, the difference is quite literally fire and ice. Like the hotel freezes at the end of the movie but burns at the end of the book. And they differ thematically in those ways as well, I think. Does it make Stephen King's voice or like his original content any less important even though it's been changed? I don't think so. I feel like, well, I feel like something's importance depends from person to person. If you hold movies in a higher, of a higher importance than books, then they're going to be more important to you. But I think that honestly, some change is for the better 
and if the changes don't if the changes are different from the book but don't like harm your end intention and don't like detract from it being a good movie I think it's okay to change things and I think that allows for these movies and books to exist as companion pieces to each other not necessarily having to tell the same story but like in the same way but telling the same story in like different ways that will appeal to different people so now we get to the best part of the night where we get to rate both of the movies and then ask the question did we deserve this so diego what would you rate it chapter two uh, like a solid three, three and a half. I agree. I'd give it a three. I don't think it was too bad. I think it was competently made, and I thought Bill Hader was a zaddy. Um, what would you give The Shining? Um, I'm not going to give this a five like you might, so I'm going to give it a four and a half. I'm also going to give it a four and a half. Okay, so I don't feel so bad anymore. I feel... I was thinking about having to say this all day. I was prepared to defend myself, but now I don't have to. No, I I love The Shining. Um, I Again, I wasn't that excited to rewatch it, and I did, and I thought, wow, I can't believe I wasn't so hyped. I like a good slow burn, but it was a little too slow, and I feel like the ending of the movie isn't as climactic as I'd like it to be. And if my favorite part of the movie is the stair scene, which is an hour and 45 minutes in, and I still have... 45 minutes left in the movie, I can't give it a perfect score. Mm -hmm. But the question is now, did we deserve this progression of Stephen King adaptations or, in your words, reimaginations? Um, well, I feel like It Chapter 2 is definitely, like, derivative of not just the movie that directly predates it, but I feel like a long legacy of Stephen King adaptations in general like you can see a lot of like I made the reference earlier to the like almost visual match cut of Pennywise and Jack and I feel like while that may like that's obviously a visual connection I feel like the overarching themes that tend to overlap between Stephen King movies kind of make this progression almost inevitable I think that we've hit peak Stephen King so many times in the past, like with Misery and with The Shining and with Stand By Me. And because his like array of films have been so broad, it's hard for them to continue to get better and better and better. But I think that we deserved this ending to the It chapter one, even though it was a little lackluster because we got something that was satisfying and society still sucks so we will continue to decline and hopefully next week we'll find something that we deserve because it got better and what are we doing next <laughs> well that's a good question diego so next week we will be reviewing rambo last blood and relating it to the original rambo which i am so excited about because we get to see sylvester stallone after his daughter stunk it up in our first episode 
Um, but with that being said, I think that's it for this episode of Deja Vu. You can listen and subscribe to The Ithacan anywhere where you get your podcasts or at theithacan.org. You can follow us at Twitter at WeinbergRach and at IconicaBlue. Thank you guys so much.